Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, HCI Research Associate Dr. Leandra Hernandez and her colleagues continue their weekly COVID-19 convo via Facebook Live to discuss all things COVID-19 related. So what's up for y'all this week? I'm thinking about labor a lot still. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking about labor. I'm thinking about like information literacy, health literacy, media literacy. It's just these are all of the the topics that keep popping up for me this week, too. Media literacy. Say, what do you think? Hey, Pamela. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, again, this is something I talk about with my students, right? The importance of us as consumers being able to make sense of the articles we're reading, the information that we're getting and from where. Um, so in my health club classes, each class has a weekly journal entry where they can talk about whatever they want regarding to the um, chapter topics. And in my intro to health club class, this week's chapter so beautifully timed was the mass media and health, right? So it talks about um, information literacy and how well individuals are able to digest what they're reading. Like if an individual, like if a person reads an article from the CDC or the NIH versus God knows where, right? Like, are they able to discern um, what types of information they're getting from where, particularly in terms of, um, you know, increasing rates of COVID and who's more or less likely to be impacted by it. And, like, and the fact that a lot of people don't even know that you can be a carrier and impact someone that way, even if you don't have it yourself, right? So that's kind of what I've been thinking about. And I think it's particularly difficult right now because there are people that we would normally look to as credible sources mm-hmm. who are not as good with the information right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about this too, especially in terms of how we deal with uncertainty, because so much of so much is just still unknown about this virus and how it works. And I think a lot of people think of science as something that where all of it's it's about facts, right? And they're expecting to be able to get facts. And if they are told that something isn't known yet. Mm-hmm. that makes them think that it's not a credible source, you know? So it's like, how do we, how do you persuade somebody to follow information, to follow the guidelines that are being put out there while we're still, while the thing is still evolving, we're still trying to mm-hmm. figure out what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I saw um, a conversation happening on Facebook yesterday in one of the climbing groups I'm a part of where someone was saying, you know, we're seeing skyrocketing rates and it's going to get so much worse before it gets better. And that was really alarming them, particularly from an uncertainty management perspective. 
And then um, a public health employee commented and said, well, it could be that the cases are increasing, but it could also be the fact that people are just finally getting around to getting tested and they're just finally getting the results back, right? So um, it's a yes, but also a no, not really, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have to say in the South, it's it's both that they're not getting tested and also that people are spreading. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the governor just finally gave us the shelter in place order that started today. Mm. So, um, so we've seen exponential spread and we will see more. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I've been thinking a lot about, um, all that, like it's so intimately tied up, like how the public receives the information we give and like what, I mean, like what constitutes like both belief and understanding um, I've seen people because of the healthy carrier situation, I've been thinking of typhoid Mary, Mary Mallon a lot. And I've seen people talking about her. And it's so interesting, like to, to this day, the narrative is that she didn't care if she was killing people and she was just recalcitrant. But when you read any good studies of Mary Mallon's life, it's like, well, did she, I mean, to what extent was she capable of truly believing that if she herself wasn't sick, mm -hmm. she was making other people sick in this early stage of germ theory? But we see it today. I mean, we see people struggling with the idea that they could truly be shedding viral particles when they're not symptomatic. The governor of Georgia said he just discovered this yesterday. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so it's just it's interesting to me that we cast, for instance, this character to this day as as monstrous when mm -hmm. what I see is that people still really struggle with that concept. Yeah. Oh yeah. And frankly, I don't know that I'm much better. I mean, on the surface, I believe that there are healthy cures, but I'm not wearing a mask everywhere I go. Um which is of course complicated by the fact that if you buy a mask now, you're depriving healthcare workers. <laughs> like yeah. so and we're getting really mixed recommendations on masks from CDC and and so on. But I think I was, I've been thinking a lot about the medical humanities concept of narrative wreck, right? Um, when you are in a car crash, when you suddenly discover you have, uh, you know, you're hospitalized with a terrible disease, your life, you know, you you envision your life as a certain kind of narrative, and you yourself as the protagonist, and suddenly all of that projected narrative falls apart, looks different. And it's really hard to wrap your head around that. But what's, I think, particularly hard about this is that we're seeing it on so many levels and not feeling it in our body. Like when you've just been in a car crash, you know <laughs> in your bones, in your broken bones, mm -hmm. that your narrative has changed. We're seeing it all around us, and yet we're not seeing it. I mean, if you don't have a friend who has COVID, you're seeing a beautiful sunny day right now in Florida, and you're yeah. thinking, why is my business being destroyed? Why is my life not the same? It's hard to access that that understanding of narrative wreckage. And at the same time, we're seeing it on a scale we've never seen before. The entire globe is involved in a narrative wreck right now. Um, and connecting the personal to the local, to the political, that's really, really hard right now to, to kind of synchronize the timelines. And it reminds me a lot of, um, of global warming, which is sort of the same thing. It's like, everything looks the same. I don't see anything or, you know, there's there's a storm, but it's like, well, there've been storms before. We know from the facts that, that we're sick. Mm -hmm. 
the, the narrative is going to get bad. But the ability to like change in the moment without knowing that in our bones is really, really hard for us. I love the way you talk about like, we each have this ongoing narrative at which we are inevitably at the center. And and when you're provided with information that at a microscopic level, which we can't necessarily feel or macroscopically experience, there's this dissonance of like, well, you're saying I should be doing this because of, and like you said, the global warming is the other scale. Like it's too big for us to, feel like we observe it. Yeah, although this is kind of modeling it for us. Like what happens when supply lines are disrupted in, Ch in China? What happens when people aren't working in the fields where we get our food? We're kind of seeing, you know, a kind of a little taste of what it looks like in an interconnected world mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. worldwide chaos. Oh yeah, I really love that. Yeah. Kari, let me just interject real quick. Um, one of my buddies messaged me and said they were having a hard time accessing the link. Yeah. I'm not seeing like the chat work really well or. Yeah. Um, oh, I just saw the, the chat message. So it's working from you, but I, I don't know if it's working um, on the Facebook end if anyone else wanted to join. I can get a private message to you guys out, but I can't type anything. Yeah, I can't either. Yeah, same here. Um, I clicked the link to the video and the video is working. I don't know about the chat, but the video is working for me on Facebook. Um, oh, 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 I didn't make it public. I'm the worst. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's my bad. That's my bad. Okay. Yeah. Try it now. Okay. Is Andy uh, able to join us today or not today? I, she was gonna come, but I imagine something uh, yeah. probably came up. I know she's just like, um, there, I can see messages now from the chat. Um, I see. I don't think Andy will be coming is what okay. I was getting at. Um, I made the link public now, Leah. Okay. So people should be, that was my bad. I'm. There's so many like moving parts that I have oh, to get. Oh, no worries. Can you guys type in the public chat if we, I guess we can just answer verbally though. Yeah, I don't I need to type in the public chat. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that we ever could type in there now that I'm thinking of it. That's a good point. No, I, uh, I thought we could. Well, maybe not. Maybe, okay. Well, we can answer them verbally if there's questions. Um, yeah, your friend should be able to get in now. Sorry, Leah. Cool, no worries. Yeah, I just keep coming back and back and back to labor, like because we mm -hmm. are, maybe seeing, like you said, like all these functional little parts that are invisible to us daily. And I wonder, one thing I've been meditating on a lot in the last few days is like my equal parts hope and fear that we'll go back to normal after this. And what does the normal even look like, right? Will people be more conscientious about their paper consumption, about their food consumption, about um, just like general public health practices, like washing their hands or even being a good neighbor, right? Like, does the, why does it have to take a pandemic for that to happen to hope that some sort of change would occur, even if it would? And I promise I'm not trying to be too pessimistic here, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot too. I think I kind of hope some of it doesn't go back to normal. Like, yeah. I think mm -hmm. Emily, you mentioned this last week, like what is really essential? 
we're finding essential the people that I think are often most marginalized. Yep. And, yeah, and so part great. of me is like, are we going to have like a workers' revolution? Like, and I, I kind of maybe we need that to make yeah. things better. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, just oh no, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say we've been seeing a lot of play in the in political discussions about a universal basic income, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, and just the, the war over, should we have a $15 minimum wage and what would that mean? And I understand that, you know, obviously costs really vary in different parts of the country and, you know, you might want to set those differently. But the fact is we've got enormous corporate welfare for corporations that don't pay people a living wage and then the federal government steps in or they don't and people are struggling with multiple jobs and no health insurance. And it's been unsustainable for a while. This is gonna make that visible in a new way and it's going to give those people power in a new way, I think, to, to negotiate. I mean, I think they're becoming visible as kind of heroes on the front line mm -hmm. in a way that they weren't before. So let's, let's hope that that actually moves the needle yeah. on the political discussion. I really, that's my hope. I hope that part of labor rights doesn't go back to normal because the normal was a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Put yeah. simply. What did y'all uh, think about the Instacart and Whole Food and Amazon strike? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Amazon in and of itself is like the ultimate case study for this, right? In terms of Jeff Bezos being a multi-million billion dollar heir, and then um, the actual laborers in the warehouses, particularly in Washington state, right? And then um, the public's reliance on Amazon, myself included, right? And and the, the expectation that whatever it is that we order or that we need will get here regardless of thinking about the bodies or the labor undergirding mm -hmm. that entire process. It's like, yeah, go on strike because this is crap. Right. On the other <laughs> hand, we all want our, our deliveries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I was going to say to some extent, like, and I'm not trying to go to conspiracy theorists here. Like, I think this can somewhat happen in a naturalized way, but like to some extent, our reliance on Amazon is cultivated by Amazon as they grew and like got more and more products and killed the brick and mortar. It reminds me of um, when I took a class in early modern England and like late, late early modern, like 1600s, you, you see all this poetry about people complaining about coffee as this like trained addiction via colonialism that the British are like, bringing on themselves that then they can't do without that before they hadn't known the need for. And in a weird way, they got addicted to this need for colonial resources. That's all I have to say about that. Oh. <laughs> Actually, I was, I was thinking about that. I was thinking it is also true of tobacco, although people weren't complaining about it because people still thought tobacco was was healthy and good. But uh, the, the way that that afterwards is is okay we're going to be a tea drinking nation and we're going to then have a balance of trade problem with china and then we're going to have opium wars to equalize the balance of trade mm -hmm. and then we're just going to have plantations in india and produce our our own tea with coolie labor so you know lots of lots of you know bad solutions for the original problem <laughs> yeah that's one thing i've thought about regarding climate change as well um since that's been brought into the mix is mm -hmm. like 
sometimes when I get at my most despairing about climate change is when I realize the tiny little ways that each and every one of us has been trained or not trained, but has just learned to expect certain conveniences. Oh yeah. Primarily in my life, I notice it was single use plastics. Yeah. And even like, I get these moments where I'm like, okay, I can do away with single use disposable plastic bags. Okay, fine. Like I, great. That seems really hard to do, but I'm going to do it. And then I look at the milk jug that I just bought and the plastic that is around my bread and like how I can't buy almost one single product in the store. Even if I brought my own canvas tote, like there's still things that seem unavoidable. And so sometimes I think like the systemic acceptance of living without that we would have to go through to stop climate change seems so insurmountable. And then again, I'm like, maybe this pandemic will help us. Like the, the little sort of seemingly petty complaints that you see people lodging about what they're going without, like maybe that's a tiny step in the right direction of showing us that we could live differently and it would be okay if we had to. Right, I think that's true. And I, I think also, I, first of all, I would be a little more optimistic. I think that if the, if the entire system really turned to getting rid of single-use plastics, other other ways of, other workarounds would be found. It's extremely hard as a consumer to say, I'm not gonna have any single-use plastic. Yeah. I mean, I have a prescription eye drop that comes in single-use droppers. Yeah. Uh, and every time I put them in my eyes, I feel like a terrible person, <laughs> right? Because, okay, this is going right into the oceans and the microplastics and oh God. But I can't really do much about that yeah. at this point. I mean, I need those high drops. So, you know, this is something that if you had laws that said, we're not gonna do this anymore, you know, industries would be motivated to find workarounds and we would find mm -hmm. workarounds. I mean, I remember when we had only paper bags for groceries and then people were concerned about deforestation and overuse of paper. And guess what? An invention was found, the plastic bag. Yeah. It's like an the graduate. I've got one word for you, Benjamin. Plastics. <laughs> you know, that's it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there, you know, you might say, okay, the solution was worse than the original problem. But solutions can be found at a systemic level, but people have to be motivated. Consumers have to motivate them to find right. them. That's right. why for us, we tried to do away with plastic bags in the supermarkets here in Gainesville. Local lawmakers said, okay, we're gonna have a ban on plastic bans in uh, plastic bags in, um, in supermarkets and um, were overruled basically by the state. It happened in Dallas and like, when I was living there and people wouldn't stand for it. Like it got passed mm -hmm. theoretically by a vote. I don't really remember, <laughs> but then the same democratic populace was like, we can't handle it. Yeah. yeah, I um, I do some work for a group of engineers out of the University of Nebraska at Lincoln that work on trying to get the public to care about antibiotic resistance. And the studies that we've read on science communication through them demonstrate that pretty much anywhere in the world, caring about the common good will work. 
but in America only getting the consumers to care about their bottom dollar and then to promote their demands to the companies that rely on the consumers. That's the only thing that works in American context for any social change. Yeah. So I think you're right. Consumer demands of those things. Yeah. But, but, you know, as you said, we're starting to see a kind of, we're starting to see that there are things that we thought we absolutely have to have that, you know, maybe are not going to be as important to us. And maybe that will really allow people to imagine new ways of being in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think okay. we've kind of equated progress with having access to everything. Yes. You know, like more products in the supermarkets, more of this stuff. And it's like, actually, does it increase our happiness to have more yeah. brands available, right? Like maybe uh, that's not, those aren't really related to each other. Maybe there, there are different ways of doing things where there's less stuff. Yeah. And, and I think the condo to help us get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that raises really interesting um, questions and implications about the relationship between American consumerism and then our own sort of American individualistic cultural values anyways, right? The idea that we are the center of the universe, our preferences and our needs and our wants, our demands should take priority here. And that's, that's kind of the reigning theme, right? Like I think about what pandemic might look like here versus um, in Japan, for example, when I lived there, last year and you look at how labor is valued and treated how there is this larger sort of cultural value of respect for everyone not only for the actual humans but also um for the environment and moving back to the us it was kind of that really interesting sort of culture shift and shock too looking at how um, consumerism really plays out there with something as small as I should have the right to have my plastic bags if that's what I want in the grocery store, right? Well, and to kind of bring us back more immediately to COVID just for a bit, um, I wonder, my, something I've also been mulling over is like, we also in America have a deep-seated belief in our, well, it's funny, I guess this is more fraught than I was going to say. We don't believe healthcare is a universal right, I guess. Mm -hmm. But there is this, at the same time, a belief, like we don't have a sense in America that we can't just have what we want when we want it. Mm -hmm. And particularly in terms of life-saving care, because that is legally mandated, yeah. even if it will financially break you. Yep. Um, and I know that Pamela, I don't, I've just, I've seen people, even physicians, being in complete denial that there could be blanket DNR orders ordered by hospitals. And I just really deeply wonder what the result will be in a broad social level if doctors are in that level of denial because of our American sort of individualism. Mm -hmm. I kind of think it could get violent. Like when people are like, we are owed CPR and you don't have the right to say we don't get CPR. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is why it would be great to have Andy here because this yeah. is what she talked about last week when when we were like, oh, we don't want to be alarmist about this. And she saying, no, this is this is a real conversation that people need to have and understand how these decisions are being made. And um, and yeah, I think we really need her to talk about the context of those decisions. Um, but we're seeing more and more stories about um, the fact that there is going to be. Um, you know, de facto decisions about who, you know, uh, should receive a code, right? For example, I mean, let's not even talk yeah. about respirators yet, ventilators. 
let's just talk about, you know, when people crash, you know, and they call a code and everybody's exposed to all fluids and you have to throw out all the PPE and start over with PPE you don't have, yep. you know, um, you know, when do you do that? And the tradition has been, you always do it unless it's a DNR. And yeah. now, now there's discussions behind the scenes and it's very difficult to have those discussions in the United States that there are times when that's not appropriate. There are times when it's not appropriate to offer that. Um, and if you've been reading the coverage of it in the newspapers, what's happening is that people are talking behind the scenes saying this is happening, but there's no policy. Hospitals are saying, we'll fire you if you talk this and there's no policy and then policies are being leaked and it's like, no, we were talking about this, but there's no policy. Yeah. The same thing's happening in the UK. Mm. Yeah. Um, people are talking, if you have severely disabled people who are already in long-term care, probably they're not gonna get a ventilator. I mean, again, these are conversations, I don't know how far these conversations have gone, but they're starting to be real about what that says about, you know, are we saying some lives are more valuable yeah. than others, et cetera. Um, and I think it's hard for the public, especially to understand what the medical calculus is behind that, where people may not be saying, no, your disabled life is not less valuable, but it's about the probability that you'll survive at this point. Mm -hmm. It it kind, of, it kind of reminds me of um, a lot of the memes and conversations I was seeing play out on Facebook when um, there were sort of the implications that the older generations were just not as valuable and their life wasn't as valuable in this context, right? Like if they're gonna get older and they're gonna pass away, kind of like the reigning argument is, um, if it might have been Texas, if, was it yeah. was it Governor Abbott who said that? It was a lieutenant governor who said, you know, they'd be willing to die for oh, the right. yeah. Texas. I mean, so I, you know, I was born and raised in Houston. I'm a diehard. Yep, Kari too, right? The side of the screen over here, yeah, Texas through and through. And then some, some of the things a politician say just just drive me bananas. And I remember that was one of them, right? Like all sorts of implications here about the value of life and the right to life and who has it in the moment of the pandemic. And I remember seeing a lot of my um, Hispanic, Latino friends and family members saying like, our elders are sacred, right? Like, how could you say something as asinine as that, implying that someone who's older maybe shouldn't have a um, the right to be resuscitated if something like that were to happen? It's just all sorts of um, values and ethics and moral implications coming to the fore here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah. these these sorts of decisions are made, I mean, not necessarily, not just in the healthcare system, but more generally, I think these sorts of decisions about, you know, who's going to be let to die, you know, these mm -hmm. are made all the time. It's just that this pandemic is really bringing that to the fore and making it visible. And, you know, that's something I've been thinking about a lot, the way that what, uh, that certain policies, economic policies, um, you know, leave certain groups out and just kind of say, oh, well, we're okay with losing the, that group of people, mm -hmm. you know, um, whether it's asylum seekers or whether it's people who need welfare or Medicaid or, you know, like all of these sorts of things that, that get cut and, you know, who dies because of those policies. I think maybe one of the things that this might help us to think through is, you know, who are we, who are, what do they, what do these policies imply and, and who, what groups are getting let or being allowed to die and, and, mm -hmm. If we're not comfortable with that, how do we fight those policies? 
Yeah. I get me chills, Jen. I love the way you said that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, health inequality is something that is sort of so pervasive in our society through pollution, for example. Mm -hmm. right? Who lives in polluted areas mm -hmm. um, and who's allowed to pollute those areas? You can look at hurricane relief in Katrina and Puerto Rico and see mm -hmm. some assumptions about who is valuable at work there. Right. Um, so we already let people die. And mm -hmm. and Jen, this was if I got a chance to read your article, this was what you were talking about, the kind of letting die that we don't talk about, right? We talk about it in terms of the choice to refuse care. Yeah, but not so much in terms of the choice. Uh, sorry, the choice of the, the patient choice care, but mm -hmm. not so much in terms of the choice of the of the state to refuse mm -hmm. care. The things um, that are invisible. Yeah, yeah. This reminds me of what we were saying with labor. That like, there's these things that are, have been machinations of the status quo. That in some ways, this is making everyone consider isn't your book jen that you're working on about systems of like society that depend upon a marginalized and expendable group yeah yeah it's called the feeling of letting die so yeah it's about yeah it's about the well it's about affective responses to um the to choices or sit larger systems that let people die um, in Victorian literature. But yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot in the contemporary context as well. Like, Can why I ask we, you to, because um, affect theory is something that I feel like it sounds like I under, like I feel like I understand, but I'm never really sure. Um, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> not true. Um, could you like, and if you don't want to do this, sorry, I'm totally putting you on the spot. Like prevent, okay. pretend that COVID is a chapter of your book oh my and you've already talked about the letting die but like what would be the effective response part of that well one of the things that i'm thinking about is why so i think we can assume that if for example with the dnr stuff that you guys are talking about if we were shown a video or if a video went viral of you know a medical care team or doctors um, letting someone code and not doing anything. People would have a certain emotional response to that. Um, probably, and the doc, I mean, in the book I'm talking about the response of the people doing it. But in this situation, I'm thinking more about the response to witnesses to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, why don't we have that same reaction to policy decisions that let groups die you know why don't we have the same mm. what you know what is it about the kind of um the event itself the circumstances of the event you know who's in the room what it looks like how active it is versus how passive it is how immediate it is versus how delayed it is that affects the way that we respond to that decision that's amazing i just started crying <laughs> That is so brilliant. I'm not even oh, kidding. I just teared you, up. Sorry. <laughs> thank you. That's nice to hear. It's hard to, um, I mean, speaking of new normals, you know, I mean, just in terms of academic labor, it's hard to, to feel the value of your own academic labor at this okay. time. <laughs> so um, that's a nice moment of reassurance for me. So I appreciate that. I think, you know, 
this gets at some of the same questions we were talking about earlier about um, levels of immediacy and how people are able to respond. And we see the president at least saying that differently now because he has a friend who's in a coma. And yeah. Knows, but, um, once it becomes personal, right? Once he sees a picture of a kid who's been gassed, he has a different reaction to Syria, right? Mm -hmm. And to some extent, that's all. Um, yeah. It's what we see, it's what we feel, it's what we touch, what's familiar. People grieve that more than the thing that's far away. And, you know, it's the person who is saying, your grandmother a ventilator. You mm -hmm. know, I have a 30-year-old in the next room who needs, and you're angry at that person, right? I mean, in that eventuality, I imagine that it would be very hard not to be enraged with that person. Um, but of course, the the people who've created the shortage um, and the emergency and all of the rest of it, those are people that are far away and you don't know exactly who they are and you don't know exactly what's going on. So it's hard to direct that affect. Mm -hmm. Object to glom onto, mm -hmm. especially affects like rage, disgust, you know, they want to be directed at something. Yeah. And when it's the system, right? And this is very much um, something that that happens in in Bleak House again, mm -hmm. right? Where the 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 man um, the man who's enraged and who finally just dies in his rage says, mm -hmm. you know, I keep going to one person and another, and they tell me the system. It's not me. It's the system. Yeah. Gridly. But my life has been destroyed. Right. Mm -hmm. I um I do a little like semi-specialty in Scandinavian drama from the 19th century, just because I speak Norwegian and I need it to look useful. Um, and I always, whenever I teach a doll's house, you know, with Nora, she leaves her husband. My big, my only question to my students most of the time is like, why didn't Ibsen make uh, Torvald a bad guy? Why, I mean, he never hit her. Why right. did she leave? And I do that with a story of an hour by Kate Chopin too. Mm -hmm. The woman that finds out her husband's died and she's so happy. But Chopin goes out of her way to say like, this guy was a great husband, <laughs> he was nice. <laughs> and we talk about that, but like in a way those authors would be letting us off the hook too easily if we could just say like that man. And if that mm -hmm. husband was gone, things would be okay because it's not just that one husband, it's the whole system of marital norms in that society. And that is harder to fix. And I think they don't want to let their read, I think I'm getting the affect thing here. Like, I think maybe they don't want to let their reader off effectively easy with that sort of release of like, cool, we escaped the evil abusive husband, everything's fine. Because the point is like, things aren't fine. He, you know, there's a bigger question. Yeah, it's easier for us to like create a token yeah, uh, to kind of like a like a horcrux or something, right? Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> just condense a very complex problem. I mean, I guess maybe you would call it a fetish. Um, condense a really mm -hmm. complex problem into a little piece of something, a little something, an object or a person or something, and then it's easier to think about that problem and to direct all of your anger at that object. But really it's a much, it really that's sort of a diversion from the true kind of dispersed yes. agency, the complexity. Exactly. Oh, come just teach my classes. <laughs> that's exactly what I mean when I teach a doll's house. Um, isn't that too, like that's the exact literal definition of the scapegoat in history, like in 
Jewish culture is they would like so. symbolically put, I took a Judaism class in undergrad, so it's been a long time. I may not get this right, but like they would symbolically put all this energy onto the goat and then like send it out into the wilderness. And it was kind of this release, right? Because it's the Horcrux, like this <laughs> one little like it encapsulated it all. And it would be right. nice if things were that simple. Well, and I think you know, a lot of the political force makes it seem that simple. Um, and that brings us back to Leandra and how do you get people to, first of all, have the literacy to understand that people are, that this is smoke and mirrors when people do that. But yeah. also the literacy to feel like you begin to understand these complex systems. Because yeah. if you say, you can't be mad at this because it's the whole system, then what do you do? What is available to you? People might say, well, you can engage in action, you can get involved, but the reality is people are feeding, you know, going to work and and they don't have the time and often uh, not the to really understand the complexity of questions. And that rage wants to attach to something and it's really easy to give people a skin. Yeah, like I, I think about the the mental compartmentalizing here and how for some individuals it could kind of be um, like a self-distanced kind of coping mechanism, right? So, you know, Kari, we talked about this when I came to visit you in February, but um, in line with this, something I've been thinking a lot about is the way in which COVID or the public health concern or even something on the radar is spreading in things like border camps, right? When you think about the conditions in the camps that are already severely problematic from an autonomy perspective, a like patient respect perspective. And then the fact that individuals are kept in such tight close quarters with already really deleterious sorts of um, like environmental concerns to begin with. And I talk about this with my students. I talked about it with some folks when I went to visit Kari, you know, and it's kind of thinking through that idea y'all mentioned earlier, where if it doesn't directly impact you somehow, it just, for a lot of individuals doesn't matter at all, right? Like the idea that COVID isn't a concern or couldn't happen to you unless it happens to someone you know or someone you love, right? Like right. same thing I think about with um, the border camps and the, the violence is going on there, right? Like that's also a major public health concern, not only for the individuals there who are experiencing it, but also for the way in which the virus could be transmitted. It's, it's the same thing, right? Like we, I think more collectively, culturally, as a larger sort of look at the American consciousness, just don't think about it unless it impacts us, which I think from a public health perspective is um, really concerning when we're thinking about trying to move from the idea of health awareness to actual health behavior change, not just for the individual good, but for the social good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that might be a decent place to stop for the week because we've really come full circle in a really nice way. Um, Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.